G'day. Welcome to Lunch Money. Uh, you are live with your online and social media home for special situations, workouts, and capital raising professionals. My name is Nick Samios. I'm the fund manager uh, and director here at Hermes Capital, and I am your Lunch Money live stream and podcast host. So uh, a very warm welcome uh, to our live viewers and uh, to anyone who may be watching us on replay or listening to our podcast. Um, today, uh, I'm really very excited about today's show. We are going to be talking about B2B sales and marketing. And anybody that, uh, anyone that knows me personally knows that uh, sales and marketing is, is a passion of mine. Um, I, one, of the, one of the things I just love doing is training a new salesperson, uh, a, new, a new BDM. Uh, and uh, I guess I'm getting to that stage now. You can see I've got a few grey hairs. I'm becoming that old sales dog. And uh, so I'm very, very excited uh, to have James Tuckerman on uh, today. And we're going to be talking about all sorts of stuff, uh, developments and trends and what's new and happening in the world of B2B. Before we, before we start, I'll do the usual housekeeping. I'll ask you to share, like or subscribe to our humble podcast here. We're on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, or you might be listening to us uh, on Apple. Apple uh, Podcasts. If you're listening to us there, give us a, why don't you give us a five-star rating? That'd be awesome. The other thing I'd like to remind you is if you're watching live, uh, if you any comments or questions, uh, we pick the best, uh, the best ones and we send you this Lunch Money mug. We have a new batch of Lunch Money mugs and uh, they get dispatched um, to, uh, to our live viewers who, uh, who are good enough to ask us a question. Okay, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our special guest today, and our special guest is James Tuckerman. G'day, James. How are you? Hello. I'm just trying to think about what type of sales dog you are. Are you a Labrador? Or a, oh, you're going to do that uh, one. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think you're a yeah. Basset Hound. A Basset Hound? No, no. I'm not yeah, sure I want know. to be a Basset Hound. You think so? No, they're good. They're very patient and they follow okay. up. And uh, Oh, gee. I don't know, but Ari Gold, Ari Gold is kind of my hero. I mean, one of these days I want to buy one of my competitors and go in there with a paintball gun. Um, <laughs> but, uh, that's, Maybe that's you are a pit bull. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I probably want to be. I'm a, probably a wannabe. Is one, one, one. Listen, James, I've got your LinkedIn profile here. You're the founder of Ant Hill Magazine. Uh, you're the co-founder of B2B School. You're the co-creator at B2B Dash. Uh, and yes, I have connected with you. You've got one to connect here. I really think of you as a thought leader uh, in, in, I mean, I guess, if you'd ask me, you know, do the uh, Rorschach test, here's uh, James Tuckerman. Uh, a month or two ago, I would have thought of you as startups in particular because you, I guess you, you were very active in that sort of startup and entrepreneurship space. I guess you're putting a, 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 a more of a B2B flavour on that now. I mean, what is it that keeps you busy these days? Yeah, I'm wearing a new hat. You can say, you know, uh, um, it's actually, uh, so I got some sad news today. Uh, Edward de Bono has passed away, speaking oh, of no. hats. Oh. Uh, he was he was the, uh, the person who popularized the idea of wearing different hats. Yeah. But for a good decade, which was the uh, my first ten years living the life as a business owner slash entrepreneur, I was the founder of a business magazine called Anthill Magazine. And a lot of Australians that were in the startup or entrepreneurship space about ten years ago would be quite familiar with Anthill Magazine. I launched it from my parents' spare bedroom. Uh, we grew it to be a market leader. I was named best small publisher in Australia twice. Uh, and I launched that business because I wanted to encourage Australians to be more entrepreneurial and foster a culture of entrepreneurship and innovation in Australia. 
And I'd like to think that my little humble magazine did make a dent at that time. Then, of course, the GFC swung around. It was the perfect storm for print magazine publishers. Steve Jobs invented the uh, launch, the first popular iPad. Google decided to show people that advertising could be measurable. Uh, and then magazines began to drop like flies. We were one of the first movers to go 100% digital. And that, uh, and that uh, was uh, our focus for uh, another uh, another bunch of years, five years print, five years digital. And then at some point we shifted into training and uh, training and consulting and technology development. And uh, the more I moved into that space, the more I discovered how useful some of my skills were for people in a B2B space. So we rebranded about mm, two and a bit years ago to the B2B school. And then that became the platform for B2B Dash. And uh, as part of the B2B group, can you notice a theme? Yeah. And what's been keeping me busy? Um, the B2B Summit, the Sales and Marketing Summit, which we just finished up on. Yeah. Uh, and that, that B2B Summit, uh, are people able to, if we promote that on LinkedIn, are they, are they able to go and sort of buy it in retrospect or...? I'll tell you what, what we're doing right now is we're in the process of trying to figure out a way to make it evergreen. So that yeah. means that, uh, Nick, you could sign up tomorrow and the summit would kick off for you, say, in, you know, 14 days' time, which means that you could still get access to, uh, I think we've got 16 speakers within the summit, some really amazing names if you're interested in B2B, attacking a whole bunch of really, uh, you know, important topics. Uh, and uh, we're going to, yeah, we're trying to find a way to make that, freely available to anyone who's interested, but then if they want to buy the recordings, they can buy the recordings too. Yeah, I mean, as, as I say, your YouTube channel is amazing as well. I mean, the I guess you've probably been a little bit like me and you find there are amazing people out there and uh, and most people are happy to, you know, to jump on a YouTube and, and share their wisdom. Um, you know, I get people saying to me, you know, how do you know all these people? Well, I didn't know you, James, but, I mean, obviously, actually, you, you reached out and said, who watches YouTube? And on, on a, I don't know if it was on LinkedIn or Facebook or somewhere. I thought that was fascinating. But but the whole the whole B2B um, thing, it's funny. You know, I started out at AGC selling, and I, I did this. My first sales training was a thing called um, PS... Oh, PS something, professional, PSS it was, professional sales selling, I think it was, and it was the industry <laughs> standard, you know, of uh, how to make a sales call and, you know, how to conduct yourself through a meeting and all that sort of stuff. And obviously face-to-face -face is still very important. Um, but, you know, I guess B2B has evolved uh, has evolved a lot. But before I, before I go into that, I'm just curious, um, I mean, a lot of what we do and a lot of what our, the people, a lot of what our audience does is corporate restructuring, uh, which is, you know, obviously the, the business has got into trouble. It's, it's stubbed its toe, as one of my clients once said, and it really needs to sort of start again, I suppose. But there are a lot of parallels, I think, between a startup and a turnaround. I mean, have you ever sort of applied your mind to that? Yeah, I think there definitely is. I mean, like if you even if you speak to a lot of the entrepreneurs that I've got to know and I'm, you know, very privileged to call friends over the years and and I've worked with and met with and interviewed a, a lot of amazing people at you know at the highest levels of entrepreneurship and um it's never an easy ride mm. <laughs> and if you look at all their businesses there are going to be multiple pivots so in my world I was a print magazine I raised capital the GFC went and uh gazumped that uh 
then we had to pivot and we had to become a digital business, uh, online media. Then, of course, un online media became harder and harder to make a buck in online media. So we pivoted it, pivoted to online training and consulting. And then we and then we pivoted again to to focus on a very narrow niche or niche, as the Americans say, a, a vertical and um, and then branched out into technology development. So, you know, you look at anyone in in an innovative industry or a business or even someone that's just been around the block for a while. There are going to be times of transition and they're going to be required to pivot. I think it's just part and parcel of doing it. And at the beginning of last year, when everyone went a little bit bonkers because of COVID and the shopping centres were cleared out of toilet paper, um, I watched people around me having these mental and emotional breakdowns within their business. And um, all I could think of was I think this is the third time I've had the carpet ripped out from underneath me. Uh, I think it's part and parcel of, of business. And I think that if you can survive... I don't know if you can survive one, one bombing, like in the London Blitz. If you can survive that one bombing, you pretty much feel invincible, and you can get through the next one. So I think that there is uh, there's different definite parallels. Well, I guess you, you mentioned the London Blitz. I think uh, yeah, it was uh, Winston Churchill. I think said uh, when the going gets tough, keep going. I mean, I, I guess in the in the startup space, you know, there's a lot of. Uh, I guess cheerleading and uh, and a lot of really positive stuff, but of course, you know, it, it does get tough. I mean, you know, it, it's it's not all beer and skittles. I think, um, you, you know, people people can can fail. It doesn't mean they fail forever, but the business can fail. I've always I've always said that uh, if you know people claim that they know what small business is all about, you know, you see the banks advertise on TV. You know, we get small business. And I've always thought, you know, my saying is when you've had to dip into your kid's uh, school fee fund to pay payroll this week, um, mm. then you know what small business is all about, you know. Uh, but so, so um, you know, so I guess, yeah, what you're saying is that, you know, you acknowledge that it's, it is a tough road and you, there's, uh, there's all sorts of uh, twists and turns along the way. I think maybe if it's a larger business and you're going through, you know, what you'd call a special situation or a stub of the toe or a transitional situation i guess if it's a larger organization rather than a startup i guess it just might feel that a little bit more public and i think that that there makes it seem a little bit more scary and a little bit harder whereas the reality is that if you speak to you know most business owners uh just about everyone's been to the wall at least once uh, it's like those funny things that you you know you might you make you make some mild quiet confession to a good friend and you say oh yeah um, you know my, my my dad always had a problem with alcohol right and you think that you're the only one and then you'll probably discover that you know three out of five Australian kids grew up with one parent that had a had a complicated relationship with alcohol uh, when it comes to this business stuff we all go through it uh, yeah. it's um. You know, it's the Muhammad Ali quote, you know, it's not how hard you hit, it's how fast you can get. Was it? It's not how hard of the hit, it's how fast you get back up, something like that. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's, uh, yeah, look, I mean, there's plenty of good uh, plenty of good boxing metaphors in there, I'm sure. I mean, I've always said that, 
you know, for a football team to win a flag or a, or a grand final trophy, you know, you, know, you need to know the smell of the canvas. You need to have taken a knock and, and got down before uh, before you can you can really win. Um, what 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 uh, in, in in the in the startup space? And then I really want to get into B two B. But in the startup space, what do you think are the the big challenges at the moment, and how have those challenges changed? Like at the moment, there is so much cash around. You know, with the with the governments printing money like crazy. You know, the U.S. is spending trillions. Uh, there was a thing in the Wall Street Journal yesterday where banks are saying to their business customers, "We don't want your deposits." So there's lots of money. There's funds starting up all the time. I mean, what what are the challenges that the in, in startup world at the moment? Do you think? It's just got to be how easy it is. Now that sounds crazy that it's a challenge because when I started Antil Magazine 18 years ago, it was expensive. You know, uh, and I was doing things that were real bootstrapping strategies at the time, but it was still expensive. I mean, like every edition of the magazine was going to set me back a hundred thousand wow. dollars, which means that if I wanted to get a magazine out, uh, I had to make sure that I was generating one hundred thousand dollars because I didn't come from family wealth or have a have a big war chest to run with. Now you look at you know, the people that have come since then. And there's this uh, fairly remarkable young man called Nathan Chan, and he runs a business called Founder, which kicked off as a digital entrepreneur magazine, F-O-U-N-D-R. And uh, <laughs> when he started, he invited me out for, for lunch and uh, and the cheapskate took me to Nando's. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he was, he was, you know, was the typical cash-strapped entrepreneur. Um, now he's doing multiple seven figures. Um, and he's done it in a remarkably short amount of time because he didn't have to launch. I mean, like I had to raise venture capital, not venture capital, more like seed capital. Um, after about, I think, the third or fourth edition, I went out and raised money. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was a complex exercise. Now you have a look at the cost of entry and you throw in those elements like uh, the opportunity to get a redundancy package. So um, I know, for example, at the moment, I think that the Victorian state government is about to roll something out called called job skills, and they're paying, some, you know, they're paying people three thousand dollars to spend on their education so that they can become more resilient in a changing landscape and, and workforce and start their own business. Three grand, you could start a business these days. You can yeah, start a business yeah, with less yeah. than a grand, you know. So I think that the bigger challenge is not to do with um, access to capital. There is definitely a valley of death, uh, which means that it's really easy to get started. Uh, it's probably difficult to raise that 300,000 to 2 million, and then it's easy again. So there's definitely, when it comes to raising capital, there's this, there's this valley of death, which is really, really difficult to get out of. But I think that the biggest challenge is, um, two challenges, I think. One is uh, it is so easy. And the other thing is the absolute extreme proliferation of options so it's it's really hard to sometimes sort through all the different voices that are out there and work out what set of steps are going to get you to your destination in the least amount of time for the least amount of cost because the options are so vast uh, uh, most of the uh, i mean you're obviously still deeply plugged into the startup community. I mean, are most of the startups that you see, uh, you know, people reinventing the wheel or building a better mousetrap or are they just better ways of, uh, you know, delivering 
<laughs> you know what? It, uh, yeah. it hasn't changed in 20 years. It yeah. really is. There's what you've got is you've got crazy entrepreneurial types that unfortunately think that they have created something that nobody's ever done before. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's just still a ton of them out there when if they spent 5, 10, 15 minutes on Google, they could discover that there's a bunch of different ones out there. There's a there's, It hasn't changed. There's a gazillion of people like that. If you've got a brand new idea and it's a wild brand new idea, um, please Google it. You know, yeah. talk to as many friends as possible. Don't, don't, I meet people at networking events. So I used to when we were allowed to go out, out and meet people at networking events. And I'd say, oh, tell me about your idea. And they'd say, oh, I'm not, a, I, I won't tell you unless you sign an NDA. And I might say, I met you three years ago at a networking <laughs> event and you said the yeah. same thing. Yeah. How's it going? And then they tell you and you go, you know, I can name four companies that are doing that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, that, 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 that hasn't changed at all. Unfortunately, in Australia, it's really hard to launch something that is a genuine unicorn. We've had some great stories uh, like, you know, Canva and, uh, you know, Atlassian. And then there's yeah. some other ones like 99designs and a whole bunch of, uh, there's, there's, there's quite a few, but, uh, but no one's going to back that type of company in Australia until it's got a fairly consistent MRR, which is monthly recurring revenue. So yeah. B2B-.io is only 14 months old, young, and we're getting, we're growing by 14.6% MRR wow. every month. Now, if we were in another country, we probably would have raised money a year ago just off the pure potential. But in Australia, you have to get to a certain level before people uh, are going to take you a little bit more seriously. But I, I think that the, the, the real intelligent money or the real intelligent startup entrepreneurial people, they are the ones that look at something that everybody else is possibly already doing and then they just do it better. So, you know, if I was to make this yeah. really old school, you you go to the suburban shopping strip where you've got all the shops and if one of them is a grubby old pizza shop that hasn't changed in 30 years, sounds really harsh when I say it this way, Yeah, you open up a better modern cutting-edge pizza shop three shops down and you'll kill it because the first one tells you that there's demand despite selling a crap product. Well, well if two uh, years ago, if two years ago I'd said to you, James, I want you to put everything you've got on this great idea I have, uh, it's a lay-by business, uh, except instead of lay-buying, you're going to walk out of the store with the goods. And I'm going to call it buy now, pay later just I to make know. it sexy. You I know. know. You'd say, well, what? get out of here. You know, that's ridiculous. Mm. Um you know, I mean, their share price isn't quite what it used to be, but uh, it's still it's still astonishing. Anything in fintech right now, um, yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty amazing. And uh, and uh, yeah, it's uh, what is amazing is that these fintech companies, a lot of them, the revenue is not huge, the profit is quite unimpressive. But the amount of money under management is so huge that it gives them these incredible valuations. Yeah, well, I think it's not just that. I think it, it's all, I th you're right. But I think also if you're in the space, 
uh, where you know where the hot money is, where all the funds yeah. want to invest in. Uh, I, over Christmas, I did a um, I did a little bit of a training on on M and A, you know, just to brush up. And uh, one of the things I talked about the multiple, and just by redefining your business, you know, you can all of a sudden if you if you've gone from being one thing and let's say now you're a fintech. Uh, you know, well, well, the multiples on that go from 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 one thing to the next. Listen, I, I wanted to get to specifically on the B two B thing, and a lot of our audience uh, they're accountants, uh, and when I, they're, they're normally in the restructuring space. So, uh, you know, uh, insolvency people, maybe uh, safe harbour. Um, you know, we've, we've had on this show, for example, uh, you know, we've had Richard Hughes, who uh, was uh, one of the one of the main people at Deloitte behind Virgin. Uh, and we've had, you know, those sorts of people, uh, uh, the, you know, the people that are, are, are in our audience, not necessarily the guys just doing the big jobs, but the ones that are doing small restructures as well. And some of them uh, might be younger professionals that have just got their ticket, as they say. Um, and, you know, what everybody wants, what everybody needs, what every firm needs is the rainmaker. You know, it's mm. one thing to have uh, to have all the people who are really knowledgeably, you know, they know how to do a restructure, they know all the tips and tricks, but if they can't win the business and if they can't bag the elephant or whatever, if whatever you <laughs> want to say, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, because brains as they brains are cheap, as they say. Yeah. It's it's being able to. So what what are what what are what are the sort of people that your what what are your clientele generally? What do they look like? Are they professional Ooh. services or? Well, first, you made me think of a mnemonic that I learned. I studied law. I was going to be a lawyer. So I did a law degree at the University of Melbourne. Then I stumbled, stumbled into PR and I worked in uh, all these big PR advertising agencies for, for a couple of years before I started the magazine. But uh, uh, And you've probably heard this, but within every organisation of that structure, there are finders, minders and grinders. Is that right? Grinders, minders right. and finders. Right. And the grinders do all the work, get paid the least. The minders look after the clients, do less, get paid a bit more. And the finders do almost no work and get paid the most. Uh, and they are the uh, and they are what did you call them? The elephant hunters or something? Well, they're bagging the bagging, you know, the rainmakers. Bagging the elephant, I think, is a uh, uh, a Wall Street term. I think when when Buddy Fox uh, goes after uh, Michael Douglas and he gets in, he, he bags the elephant. Uh, there there you go what i what i would say is that yeah the money's always been in the uh in the finders uh and it doesn't matter whether you're running your own business and you're the key principal finder or you you work with another organization and you acknowledge that if you can elevate yourself and become the finder you become um, more valuable to the organization that you're in the the biggest i mean like the, the biggest thing that we're seeing is uh when we talk about B2B sales and marketing, um, if this was if this was 20 years ago, the options were extremely limited and outrageously obvious. So from a marketing perspective, you would have this pie and you'd like, oh, we're going to spend this bit on television and this bit on radio and this bit on direct mail and this bit on um, entertainment and functions and events. Uh, and then when it came to sales, you would have your um, your your sales director, a couple you know business development managers, uh, a couple SDRs maybe, uh, sales development reps, and um, and most of the time to get the work, you'd hit the phone, or once yeah. again you'd go to the networking event. You'd be you'd be seeking out referrals from your network, which is still very powerful. Don't get me wrong. And I think that uh, Nick said at the beginning that um, 
that uh, face-to-face relationships are still still very, 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 very powerful. Or maybe you said that before we hit record. I'm not quite sure. Can't but what right. I do know is that the pie was fairly limited and now there are, it seems like there are this infinite variety of op- of ways to get leads in the door. So that's the one bit. That's the top of the funnel. That's the leads. And we've got, um, you know, we've got our websites, we've got social media, we've got strategic alliances, we've got uh, ads, um, and if we, we've got podcasts. But even if you look at one thing, like a podcast, you say, well, is it a podcast or is it a YouTube video or is it a StreamYard live event? You know, what the heck is it going to be? So there's all these options. Then at the, then at the bottom, and I'm trying to... Um, see what this looks like on the camera. Sorry if you're... Yeah. Uh, no, that's good. That's podcast. good. You got a, you got I'm a making a funnel with my hands. Yeah, yeah it's a very good looking funnel. <laughs> funnel with my hands. The people at the bottom at the pointy end when we're talking about sales, um, that's been really messed with. Uh, mm. it, it, I mean, I have this uh, image that I use in my marketing where I'm standing next to this brick wall and you can see that at some point someone has smashed through this brick wall kind of like... Um, a cartoon character like you know fred flintstone has bashed through the wall and has left the shape of a human and then someone's gone and bricked it up and um and in this image i'm pointing at the door and uh, this 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 uh bricked up hole and i'm saying this was once a door and the reality is that um so many of the ways that the mechanisms and the strategies that we used to use to grab the attention find the you know find the find the whale or the elephant, grab their attention, hold their attention, build a relationship, build that trust. So many of them have just evaporated, which means the that other, the we other need thing to find though, new ways. But the other, the other thing is that in the old days, I've just dropped my pen, in the old days, uh, you know, you would go and sit in front of a customer. And, and I always used to say, if I can get in front of the, the customer, I, I can close. You know, you can hear, hear, hear some old school language there. Mm. Uh, but these days, you know, the, the person that you think you've closed goes home, sits on the sofa like I do, uh, is, is, is watching uh, YouTube, but they're also Googling and they, mm. might, they just may Google and suddenly come across one of your competitors and maybe fill in an online form or maybe, you know, maybe something pops up on social media. I mean, that, 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 that funnel is under attack at a lot more points along the funnel, I think, than, than ever before. Yes, um, Google did a report called The Zero Moment of Truth, and they uh, analysed, you know, hundreds of thousands, of, actually hundreds of millions of data points across tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of websites. And they were analysing uh, human behaviour in a whole bunch of different industries. And one of those industries is the complex sale, and that's what we have in B2B. People aren't pulling out a credit card and going tappity-tappity-tap and buying something from our website. We're, we're not selling an e-commerce product. If, if we're in a complex sales environment, which is, I don't know, 80%, 90% of all B2B sales, it begins with a conversation. There needs to be a little bit of education and an explanation. An explanation and a relationship is built. You have to demonstrate value. There might be multiple decision-makers. Um, you might have to, you know, discuss payment arrangements. There's all sorts of different elements. But they found, and I've, I've got to get this right, I think it's it was seven hours, 11 interactions across four locations to close a complex sale, and that was the average. So mm. it might only be one hour and it might only be four interactions in one location, 
But then again, it could be, I don't know, 30 hours mm. <laughs> across 30 locations, you know, uh, you know, 30 interactions across 10 locations. That, that was yeah. the average, seven hours, 11 interactions, four locations. And if you think about going back to the ways that we would have done things 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I can't invest seven hours of my time to close a oh. client. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. No, well, the payoff. Yeah, if you do a payoff uh, calculation on that, you know, the, it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, if it's a really big value client, I mean, mm. like, you know, obviously, if the client's worth, you know, tens of, you know, well, I'm not even say tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if the client's mm. worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can put in your seven hours. Mm. So that, what that means is that we need to engineer different ways to accelerate that process and all those different touch points. Mm. Fortunately, a lot of the ways to engineer those touch points aren't radically dif- difficult to understand or explain or, or implement. The, the challenge that most people have is that they don't know what, what things to do in what order. So where should I start this process? Mm. Uh, how am I going to sequence these things together in a, in a nice, clean way? Well, let, me, let, let, me, let me start. You, you say how to start the process. Mm. Uh, if I, you know, if let's say you, you, you know, someone watching this is an accounting firm in Sydney, and they got four partners, and they they all want to ramp up, and they say they get James in, and they say, you know, what's the low hanging fruit for you in terms of, uh, you know, getting early wins? Low hanging fruit is, is always the network. That's no, the network that you already have. So right. most organisations usually already have a database. If you've been around the block a few times, you know you're going to have a database. Uh, even if you've been in business for only a, you know, a matter of months, we had a guy called Matt Richter. He went through one of our training programs, brand new business, brand new business. Uh, and he said, I don't have a network. And we went, okay, well, let's just have a look at how many connections you have on LinkedIn. Let's have how many connections that you've got on Facebook. How many people do you have in your contacts in your Gmail account? Like, just think about that. Like, imagine, Nick, if you like exported all the contacts from your Gmail account right now, do, could you have a guess how many contacts you'd have? Oh, thousands, yeah. Thousands, thousands. I wouldn't be surprised if it was more than 10,000. Yeah. Uh, but because um, I did it and I got and I was about 15,000, 17,000. It was huge uh, mm. because I've had the same Gmail account for a very, very long time. So he um, he did that and he uh, and he exported all these contacts into, a, into a, a smaller database. He didn't add them to an email newsletter or do anything spammy. But he sent out what we would call a, a batch set of emails, where you might where you're sending out one-on-one emails to a to a, uh, a smaller group of people. Usually, under 500 is what's in a typical batch, um, so that you don't uh, get involved in any you know dirty black hatty grey area stuff. You don't want to do that. And um, this was Matt. Didn't even have a business at at this time. And I got this wonderful testimonial from him, and he said. Uh, he said, I picked up a strategic alliance partner. No, it was two strategic alliance partners, one radio interview, and 19 clients. Now I've got to go out and start my business. Um, and that came from the network that was already under his nose. Now I speak with people and they've got this, they've got massive networks, massive databases. They just don't even know what to do with it. So that's usually the low-hanging fruit. Uh, reawakening, reigniting, reconnecting. It's often said that an existing client, what is it? Signing a new client is 16 times more expensive than re-signing or selling something new to an existing client. 
But yeah, everybody's, okay. well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find new people. But, you know, it's 16 times cheaper. So, so, so if that's uh, if we had sort of a SWAT thing going here, we'd say, okay, well, you're seeing that is the number one opportunity. The low hanging fruit is uh, is look at your existing network. What what do you generally find is the biggest weakness in a, in a professional services setting? I think I think it's over reliant on over reliance on the on the staff and the key players to do all the business development work. So you go to, uh, I mean, like I could go to a small accountancy practice, mid-size, all the way up to, you know, the big three or four or whatever they are, whatever they call themselves now. Um, and, you you know, what's your mechanism for bringing, bringing in new work? And it's, you know, it's, 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 it's sending out our staff to hand out business cards at the American Chamber of Commerce and Industry Christmas Party that's happening. You know, it's a... Uh, and that's fine. I mean, like, seriously, I mean, like, one of your greatest assets in that type of organisation is obviously going to be your staff. But first and foremost, wouldn't it help to train up those staff members so that they were better at that stuff, even to the point of just helping them perhaps re-engineer their LinkedIn profiles as a mechanism to collect leads? So we're talking about the parallels between startup culture and bigger businesses. A startup can build a business with nothing but a landing page and a LinkedIn profile. You know, they don't need an inexpensive $30,000 website and all this other stuff. And if you look at a larger organization, say you've got 20 staff, 30 staff, 50 staff, 100 staff, it's not hard to empower all those people and show them how that they can, uh, how they can play their bit to bring in leads without necessarily schlepping out to the local RSL, not RSL club, you know, whatever it is, the um, all the different clubs and associations that are out there and flicking out business cards like confetti because not everybody's well suited to that. I'm uh, what they call an extroverted introvert. Do you, do you still have a business card? I don't have a business card. I haven't had a business card in, in over a decade. Uh, I, I, I do have a business card. I'm trying to find one so I can show it off to you, but... Uh, um, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll be mildly impressed. So I've got this is my business card. Uh, there we go there. But on the back, because we're all oh, used yeah, to it. Right? Yeah, there you go. Head so, of your time. Yeah. Do The second last copy of Antil magazine had QR codes in yeah. it. Yeah. And yeah, I was like, no, and we got we got it was crazy. Anyway, story for another day. Anyway. Well, with, with that, that QR code goes to my link tree. Which has uh -huh. all the you know all the podcast landing page, all the podcasts and all the all the different sites you can watch this thing on. So oh, look, um, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I, I noticed, for example, in your LinkedIn profile, you know, you've got um, uh, want to connect. You know, well, I mean, that's so positive. I mean, yeah, who doesn't want to connect? Um, the other thing is, I mean, like just a simple thing, like uh, imagine this. Wow, how radical! Putting your email address front and center of your LinkedIn profile. People go, oh, I don't want to do that. Someone might might take my email. Yeah. and reach out to you and ask yeah. how they can spend money with you. Uh, oh, I don't want to put my mobile in there. What if someone calls me? And they call you and they say, hey, I was checking out your LinkedIn profile. Can we meet up? Because I think that you might be able to help help me. You know, they're worried that someone's going to scrape it and do something nefarious with it. But the reality is, is that um, when it comes to a tool like LinkedIn, and uh, most people are using LinkedIn, uh, well, you're, they're either using it to get their next job or they're using LinkedIn as a business development tool, yet they're putting up all these barriers to stop people actually, you know, to stop opportunities coming their way. So they're saying, oh, I use, I use LinkedIn as a business development tool, 
but I'm not going to accept any contact requests unless they're, you know, jump through 27. Well, it's like your mobile, your mobile phone time. number as well. I mean, my mobile phone number's on my profile, I'm pretty sure. I mean, people, you know. Whatever. You know, you got to you got to be realistic. What's the worst case scenario? Someone puts you on one of those terrible, you know, lists that where they call you at dinner time and try and yeah. sell you something. And you know what? It's already happening, and we know how to block them. We don't recognize the number. We don't answer. You know, it's 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 not a big deal. And if someone really wants to get to us, they get to us. It's 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 the same with it's the same with email as well too. But I, I think you asked the question before, where would where would a B2B business operator start? And I did say the easiest low-hanging fruit is usually the network that you have. Uh, if it's a larger organization, you've also got this wonderful asset, which is the staff. But I also don't want to underplay the importance of having the underpinning framework to go under that. So, for example, you could reach out to your existing network and say, hey, how are you? Uh, do you want to spend some money with me? And if it's a very, if it's a very neglected database, that's like your, you know, your brother-in-law that you haven't heard from in four years reaching out. Hey, you know, Franco, how you doing, mate? Yeah, great. Can I borrow some money? You know, it's a, <laughs> you know, unless you've got that underpinning structure where you know how you, how you want to collect a lead, how you want to pre-qualify the lead, who you would regard as a Goldilocks client, who's not going to waste your time, having a mechanism built within the business to pre-qualify that lead. Uh, how how much underpinning of, stuff? How much mm. of what you do uh, in B2B school or your engagement with, with, with uh, in, in consulting, I mean, how much of it goes back from sales, back into, you know, differentiation, the segmenting, all that sort of, or even back into product development itself? Well, there's three elements to the B2B school that we focus on, and uh, these are three interlapping circles, and they seem very big picture, and that's because they are, until you get into them. And the first circle of our three overlapping circles is sales, the second is marketing, and the third one is scale. So when we're talking about sales, you've got to have an offer that's compelling, you need to have systems in place to elevate anticipation before you meet with a prospect, and you need to um, have the basic soft skills in place and mechanisms to be able to close that client. And uh, that there is that there is sales in a nutshell. It's it's. I start with the offer because I've seen this again and again. You're talking about product and differenti differentiation. A lot of people might have amazing you know skills. They might have a whole bunch of different leads, but then they create these offers that repel clients that are structured in a way that make it difficult for them to make a decision. It's very weird. So the offer is the most important bit in sales, having the systems and the technology to elevate anticipation to get those, those 11 interactions in as quickly as possible, uh, and then the soft skills to close. And at this day and age, uh, there's a McKinsey report came out that said 81% of B2B buyers and sellers don't want sales and marketing practices to go back to the way that they were pre-COVID. So they actually like the idea that you are engaging with someone over Zoom to, to sell them a, a product or service. That's sales. Yeah. Then you've got marketing, which is about yeah. getting the lead. Yeah. And there's three elements to that. And then you've got scale. And the scale is a, if you can't do scale unless you've got your sales better down and your marketing better down, because scale that, is that wonderful point and you know this, you meet with people and you say, oh, how did, you know, when did, um, when did things really take off for you? 
and they'll say, oh, it was, um, it was when we just started the podcast or it was, it was when we started doing radio ads or it was when we started doing webinars or it was when I published the book. You know, that's when, that's when things explode and that's when you're not doing one-to-one sales. That's when you're doing one-to-many one or at least doing one-to-many enough to be able to collect the lead and warm the lead enough so that when you get them on a, on a Zoom call or meet them face-to-face, you can often get a commitment as early as the first conversation because all the legwork's being done. So they're well, the three so. main elements. Mm. Okay. Well, in, in capital raising, uh, you know, particularly in private equity or, or even uh, the, uh, the sort of early investor stage, scalability of the business and what the opportunities for scaling uh, are always critical, aren't they? Because uh, people don't want to invest in a business that's going to, just going to grow incrementally. Uh, they want to know how the business is going to you know, grow tenfold uh, or more. You know, three three magic words: predictable sales model. I mean, like right. if you've got a predictable sales model, uh, that's magical. Um, most professional services, uh, most B two B business owners operations don't have a predictable sales model. They have a whole bunch of people that do a whole lot of legwork, and they also get referrals. They rely overly heavily on referrals. Referrals are great. It means that you're doing a terrific job. Uh, these people like you, but they're very hard to own and manage and control. Uh, so, for example, some months you'll get no referrals at all. It might be like uh, January and February in professional services. Referrals just kind of vanish and disappear. And then there's other months where they peak. And it becomes very inconsistent. Mm. All right. Well, look, James, uh, we're, we're sort of up on our, our, normal, our normal time limit. I mean, there isn't an ax, but we, we generally try to run about 40 minutes. So, uh, it had, yeah, I'll ask you any, any sort of closing thoughts or any ad- advice for uh, particularly prof- people in professional services to try to win more work and uh, maybe, yeah, let's, let's sort of keep it, keep it focused on that. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll end with a slightly cryptic question for everyone who's listening or watching the video, and it pulls together some of the pieces that I've just been talking about now. But... Uh, and I don't know, Nick, there's no correct answer to this question, but I'll see how you go. Uh, you've got a destination that you want to get to. What's more important, the train, the tracks, or the driver of the train? Just imagine that as it's, it's a cryptic question. You've got a destination you want to get to, uh, and you've got the train, the tracks, the driver of the train. In my cryptic question, you are the driver. You know where you want to go. The train itself is uh, a metaphor for uh, technology. And the and the tracks of the strategy. What do you what do you? And by the way, I'm not sure there is a correct answer, but I'd like to hear what you think. What do you think is more important, the train, the tracks, or the driver? Well, that's it. I guess when you put it in terms of the strategy, uh, you know, I saw a quote. Uh, uh, I think it might have been a Drucker quote or someone today that said uh, uh, it was on Twitter. I saw someone quoting it, but you know, strategy is great, but it's it's execution is everything. So I'm not sure where does it, where is execution? Well, execution is the execution is the driver of the train. So the driver can't right. just sit there in his funny little hat <laughs> and uh, and go choo choo oh, tend to drive uh, the train. I, guess, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, who's determining where the tracks are going? Because uh, yeah, well, that's the that's the, that's the driver. I, you know what? The, yeah. I don't think there is a correct answer, but the reality yeah. is is that I ask the question because people often come up with the definitive answer. They say it's the tracks. Because yeah. if you don't have the strategy, right, where does the driver know where they need to go? And the train itself is just a big piece of technology going nowhere fast. If you don't have the tracks, you don't have the strategy, you don't know where you're going. And, and I've noticed that those people 
And I'm one of those people, love a good whiteboard. You know, they love planning, 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 not necessarily executing, as you say. There are other people that say it's the driver, which is what you said, Nick. And the drivers are usually people who are great at executing. They're very good at rolling up their sleeves and doing stuff themselves. But sometimes they leap into the doing without necessarily laying out the, the tracks, the strategy. And they might try and do things themselves without using the technology. Then there are people that say the train. It's all about the train because the train's going to get you from A to B at the fastest in the fastest amount of time. Me, I love the train. I mean, like I've got B2B-.io, which allows B2B business owners to create uh, lead gateways to collect the leads, uh, email sequences to educate the leads. They can book the meeting you know, uh, using a meeting booking form. They can they can pre-qualify the lead using a mini diagnostic. They can even take money from their clients rather than send out endless streams of invoices. They can take deposits up front and they get it all on this wonderful B2B dashboard. It's an amazing tech stack that helps people. It rolls about five or six different tools into one. So they only have to use one tech tool and they've got all their data in one place. So there are people that love the technology and I love the technology. But however, once again, a technology like a big fat train without the driver to actually implement it, without the, the tracks, to, uh, without the tracks to, uh, to tell you where you need to go. And we've all been there. We've invested in a piece of technology, not known really what we wanted to do with it, not had the desire to, to drive the thing. We'll also go nowhere. It's a big piece of metal yeah. sitting in someone's back garden. Yeah. Um, so I asked the question, the driver, is it the driver, the train or the tracks? And the moral of the story is, is that uh, B2B sales and marketing, it's all three. That's what it is. It's about having the execution. It's about having the technology. It's about having the strategy. And uh, yeah, not so gratuitous plug. That's that's what we built B2B, the B2B group to do. To help people with their strategy through B2B school, help them with their technology through B2B-.io. And then of course, we've got our support team to help you guys and gals execute. There you go. Well- I think, I think B2B school looks fantastic. Uh, I think I can't think of anyone that's doing anything similar. Uh, and as I say, in the circles that I move in, in professional services, they're all highly complex sales, believe me, particularly in corporate restructuring. Uh, you know, every every piece of the puzzle is there's advisors all over the place trying to tear the business away from you. Um, so, and I, I think that uh, what you're doing there is fantastic. So, I would encourage anyone who's watched this or listened to this to uh, follow the links that'll be in the in the brief after this. James, thank you so much. I, I feel very privileged to have had you uh, on my on my podcast today. So, thank you very much for making the time. It's been my pleasure and it's been a ton of fun, Nick. It's great to have a conversation with someone who knows how to do this stuff well. That's you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye.